Friends just, they assume more importance because, you know, they become part of your aging plan. Who are you going to spend your free time with? Who's going to be there for you when you are old? You know, life becomes harder. It's harder. In midlife, I think you're staring at a hallway of partially locked doors. There are still some open doors. And the great thing is that you can have, you can make friends at any point. That is one of the like few areas where options remain open. You can acquire new friends. You know, you might not be able to career pivot. You may not be able to have a kid. You know, there are a limited number of spouses you can have, but you can keep having friends. So, I mean, that's the one area of optimism in life in a funny way at this stage. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is journalist and author Jennifer Sr. Jennifer has been a columnist and a book critic for the New York Times, and her 2014 book about modern parenting, All Joy and No Fun, spent eight weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. She is now a staff writer for The Atlantic magazine, where she's published a number of memorable long feature articles, including a recent one that struck a particular chord with readers. The article was about friendship, specifically the complexities of friendship in adulthood and how things like professional envy and perceived slights over personal decisions can result in devastating impasses. I brought her in to talk about this article and to also examine why it resonated with so many people. We also talked a bit about a piece she published last September called What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind. And that was about a family's struggle to make sense of 9-11 after their son died at the towers that day, a family who she actually knew personally. But before I get to this interview, I just want to clarify a few things that come up in it that are minor, but will drive me crazy if I don't make them clear. The first is that at one point I make a reference to the portmanteau frenemy, and I kind of uh, wonder if it maybe originated on sex and the city. And it turns out I was way off on that. It's thought to have appeared in print as early as 1953 in an article by the gossip columnist Walter Winchell. That said, uh, the author and activist Jessica Mitford claimed decades later that it had been coined by one of her sisters. Who knows? But in any case, it was not a Carrie Bradshaw-ism. The second thing I want to make clear is a reference Jennifer makes in the conversation to her boss being forced to resign and her subsequent signing of the famous Harper's letter, which we talk about briefly in the interview. The boss was James Bennett, the New York Times opinion editor, who left the paper in June 2020 amid backlash to an op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton. That is more than you need to know. We really barely touch on this, but the names kind of come up without being explained a lot, and I didn't want anyone to be lost. Not that you would be. Anyway, here's the interview. Jennifer Sr., welcome to The Unspeakable. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. You are someone I could have had on the podcast for any number of reasons on any number of occasions over the last several years. You wrote a book about parenthood called All Joy and No Fun, where you looked at the way modern parenthood has become 
such a slog. Uh, you've been an opinion columnist at the New York Times, and you've covered lots of areas, including politics. And I feel like specifically you you cover what might be called the psychology of political engagement. Ooh, I love you for saying that. And it's a first. Can, can I steal it? Yeah. Okay. It's a, it just, there's something, there's some, it's a very specific thing that you, that you do anyway. So you're now a staff writer at the Atlantic where you recently published a piece that struck a nerve with a lot of people. It's not a political piece on its face. It's a piece about friendship, specifically adult friendship and how intense it can be. The title of the piece is it's your friends that break your heart. What made you write this piece? If I told you the origin of this, it would, I mean, for the people who are journalists who are listening to this, they would find it funny and get it. It's a little crazy. So yes, I was a book critic at the Times, and then I was a a columnist at the Times, and I was really sick of writing about COVID and work and the psychology of the office and Trump and all the things that one does as a columnist. And I said to my editor, I just want to write a palate cleanser about the trip, the invisible trip wires that sort of bust up friendships in middle age. And my editor said, oh, you could stretch that into like a Sunday review cover. And I thought, yeah, you're right. I probably could if I thought about it. I never got around to doing it because I went to the Atlantic. And I mentioned this very casually to my editors. And they said, oh, you could stretch that to a cover for the Atlantic if you want. And I mean, I conceived of this as like a tiny little bonbon, like a 750 word thing. And the next thing I knew, I was like trying to figure out some way to engage it like for 8,000 words. But it really just started as like this idea. I, I think because the pandemic had done that thing where you suddenly were noticing who had completely drifted off, you know, into space, like like a wrench floating off into space, you know, like they were just gone from your life. And who the people were who you were suddenly in much closer contact with or who you really wanted to stay in contact with. And it, it was very clarifying. And so I thought, like, I ought to write about this. And I did. Well, you start off with the example of two friends named Rebecca and Elisa, and they have quite a saga. Uh, Tell us about them and sort of what their journey entailed. Yeah. So, and and their names, they were very brave about this. And they were originally going to be part of something that I was doing at the New York Times and didn't do something separate altogether. They, they, so Elisa Albert is um, a very, very good novelist, you know, very talented writer. Rebecca Wolf is a wonderful poet. They are these um, accomplished literary women who are charismatic, glamorous, ferociously articulate, found each other in upstate New York. Yeah, you say in Albany. Who who can possibly make friends in Albany? Right. Well, so, yeah, poor uh, Elisa moves to Albany not knowing anybody. And Rebecca lives, you know, kind of in the Hudson Valley. And they and, and had a, an office in Albany. Her, her literary magazine was there, Fence. And so they became friends and decided to, after a time, to write. It wasn't going to be writing a book together. It was going to be collecting. They were going to deliberately ha- like strike up a correspondence about wellness and being well and being happy and okay in the world. And it started out very enthusiastically as this kind of electrifying project where they were just like you know volleying back and forth about wellness. But real kind of philosophical differences between the two of them started to loom into view, and. Over time, their exchanges became not just intense, but tense. 
And they were eventually kind of backing into their respective corners. And suddenly what I was reading between the two of them was this argument. Their friendship was dissolving on the page. Like you were seeing it kind of in, not in real time, because obviously it was, you know, but in real writing time, you know, whatever that was. And so it felt a little bit like an Edward Albee play. They were suddenly like, they were getting very, they were, they were very hard on one another, you know, and taking all these like essential truths that they learned about one another as friends. And they were, I don't want to say hitting each other where it hurt. That sounds like it wasn't a cat fight. It was really intense and deep, you know, this kind of argument that they were having. And it ended pretty spectacularly. You almost wondered in hindsight whether they had initiated this correspondence in order to end their friendship, whether these tensions and fissures were there all along. And in writing them through, it would inevitably end in this place. You know, like the armchair psychologist and you could ask that question. And let's just be clear about what this correspondence was. It was called the Wellness Letters. It wasn't ultimately published, right? But, Correct. but you you had your hands on it. They gave it and to first me. of yeah. all, okay, right. They gave it to you. How old are these two women? When they met, Elise was probably 29 and Rebecca was probably 40. But I think by the time they were corresponding, Elisa was in her late 30s and Rebecca was in her late 40s. You know, I mean, it, it was like, a, you know, it was 10 years on probably in their friendship. If you're going to be speak like a shrink, the manifest content, the thing that, that they seemed to be breaking up over was that they had very different ideas about how to handle depression, melancholia, sadness. Rebecca really struggled with major depression. Elisa definitely struggled with some version of depression too, perhaps not as major. And Elisa was of the kind of mind that you didn't need meds to address this. And Rebecca was of the mind that, yes, you did. And at first they were kind of approaching this very gamely and, you know, Rebecca was very open-minded about it and trying very hard to make herself better without, you know, going back on meds. She'd been on and off them. And Elisa was really encouraging her to stay off them and to think about her depression differently. But ultimately, this became kind of a source of tension. But to me, the more interesting source of tension between the two of them was Elisa kept kind of returning to this idea that Rebecca reminded her very much of her mother. And Elisa simultaneously described her mother as brilliant and charismatic and imaginative and a monster, you know, and, and difficult and manipulative. And at some point, Rebecca just said, what is this? You know, I, I don't relish being cast in this role. And, you know, I, I eventually came away sort of thinking, this is so interesting. In all of our friendships, in some way or another, we are trying to re kind of create our families of origin and improve them. And it's really fraught, Right we're trying to find people to sort of correct the flaws of our childhoods. And I thought that that was really interesting and moving. It's really remarkable to think about because that kind of paradigm is almost always applied to romantic relationships. Exactly. I mean, it's a clear at this point. So, you know, you, if you're, you know, you, you, you sort of partner with the person who reminds you of your, you know, of your dad, but nicer. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, the, we're drawn, you know, the, the man marries his mother, right. Uh, you know, he marries some version of his mother because he's drawn to it, but he's also 
uh, repelled by it. Right. You know, right. And the, and the woman does the same with the father. And, and it, you're so right. It's actually, it has never dawned on me until just now that we do do that in our friendships. And it's at once less loaded, but sort of more pernicious or uh, what's the word? Just insidious, I guess. Insidious is a great word. And also I was going to say it hadn't occurred to me either until reading these. It was this real kind of epiphany moment. It was this like that moment in chem class when you're titrating and the whole solution goes from pink to clear. And you're like, oh my God, whoa. Like they're doing what people do in their romantic involvements. It's the same deal. And I think we do do that. And you have more opportunities to do it with friends, right? You can do it over and over. Yeah. And simultaneously with different people. Right. And get different things from different people and improve different parts of your life that were deficient. But this was like a very intense. And I, and by the way, it seemed to, I wouldn't have said necessarily that Elisa was fulfilling that role for Rebecca. I think Rebecca was fulfilling that role for Elisa. You talk about how when you when you revisited the the letters uh, during the pandemic, you were going through what you called a great pandemic friendship reckoning. And you write, all of those hours in isolation had amounted to one long spin of the centrifuge, separating the thickest friendships from the thinnest. The ambient threat of death and loss made me realize that if I wanted to renew or intensify my bonds with the people I loved most, the time was now, right now. So what did that mean for you? Were there friendships that you were especially struggling with? Or was it just kind of a general sense of things? All of the above. So, you know, uh, there I had the phenomenon that I think a number of people had where suddenly they were back in touch with their college cohort. I was suddenly Zooming with all these people that I hadn't seen in years. And it was amazing to just sort of like look at this tic-tac-toe grid of all these great people. That was amazing. The kind of groups that held me aloft in different ways, like the moms, you know, I had like that kind of thread going. I had my old friends of about 20 or 25 years vintage kind of going. And then there were the friendships that were more problematic that were receding or that, you know, if they kind of, if they showed up in my inbox or my text messages, I thought, you know, I've got to be careful about like how I spend my time now. And it all, something about the pandemic was very, very clarifying in in every single aspect, like who I wanted to sort of, um, reprioritize and who I wanted to deprioritize. You and I are exactly the same age. We are 52. Is that what yep. you say? You are, I yes. you, are now, you are You are 52. I just turned 52. Is there something about being 52 or in one's late 40s, early 50s that sort of makes the friendship dynamic a particular thing? Is it in flux? People, you know, kids are starting to grow up. So you don't have that kind of mommy circle dynamic so much anymore. Like what's going on at this phase? Yeah. I I mean, I definitely think so. Also your kids are rejecting you, right? Like they're, they're, I mean, (laughs) you need you to turn to your friends. Right. right. I mean, it's really, I think that the trauma of middle age and I didn't, you know, I'm not the person who came up with this, a, a really brilliant guy named Lawrence Steinberg, who studies like adolescent psychology is the one who pointed out that midlife crises are not really age correlated for the parents. It's, it's according to the age of the children. And it can happen, of course, to people who have no kids too. But it's really when your kids become teenagers. So if your kids are teenagers, when you're 36, 
or if your kids are teenagers when you're 52, whenever it is, that's when the midlife crisis starts because they are rejecting you and you have to fall back on, you know, either your marriage, if you have one, or your partnership, or your friends, or your work, something else to sustain you, whatever it is. Because your kids have not only decided that they don't need you, they might in fact decide that you're flawed in any number of ways, and they're going to start to inventory those flaws for you. And it's going to be devastating. And if you don't have kids, it looks different. You know what your, the rest of your career is going to look like. Like You can kind of see the peak from here. Right. You know, <laughs> speak, speak for yourself. I don't know about that. But okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I, I I feel like I'm just staring at the downhill part. You know, I mean, I sort of know what it looks like. I know what the oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. And no, in a bet right. I know. I know what the rest of my career is going to look like, and it's it doesn't look great. Yeah. Right. No, I, I, mean, I thought you meant like you know I can be uh, I can feel okay about uh, my kids hating me because uh, my career's no looking, so no no. I'm saying like I've already crested. Like I already know it. Right. And you know, <laughs> right. I mean, I used to have this conversation with Bob Kolker, my office spouse, who I met in this piece, you know, who is really one of my dearest and closest and uh, my everything friend. I mean, I just love him. And he and I at 35 were saying, this is great, but are we going to be doing this like still when we're like 50? And we are, I mean, you know, he got to go on Oprah, which was awesome, but like, I'm still kind of doing this at 50, you know, and 52. And so is he right now, you know, I mean, like how many times can you kind of keep doing, even when you're really, really you know, successful and you're doing and you're crushing it. I mean, the fact is you still know what the contours of your life are like. I mean, I think, you know, friends just, they assume more importance because, you know, they become part of your aging plan. Who are you going to spend your free time with? Who's going to be there for you when you are old? You know, life becomes harder, you know, just it's, it's harder in midlife. I think you're staring at a hallway of partially locked doors. There are still some open doors. And the great thing is that you can have, you can make friends at any point. That is one of the like few areas where options remain open. You can acquire new friends. You know, you might not be able to career pivot. You may not be able to have a kid, you know, there are a limited number of spouses you can have, but you can keep having friends. So, I mean, that's the one area of optimism in life in a funny way at this stage. A lot of what you wrote about in the piece revolved around jealousy or envy, I guess, professional envy. That that seemed to come up a lot. And I know for people in circles like ours, it's in pretty heavy rotation, feeling envious of people, of our friends and kind of resenting people, even if we are, you know, purporting to support them. Did you find out anything new about envy and its machinations in the course of reporting the story? I mean, new? No. Well, yes. I thought what Paul Bloom told me, he's a psychologist who taught forever at Yale, and now he's up at, I think, UT, University of Toronto. He um, said something great that I had not considered, which was that he, he taught this course on the seven deadly sins at Yale a long time ago. And he noticed that envy was the only sin that people didn't boast about. Like people boast about their anger because it can be righteous. They can boast about their lust because like sexual conquests, you know, for some people that's great. Gluttony about all they ate and all they cooked and all they drank. 
you know, sloth. Oh my God, I slept until four this afternoon. I mean, all these other things, you can sort of enjoy every other sin. Every other sin has some element of satisfaction and enjoyment. And also there's a way to slake the feeling, right? I mean, you can work out your anger. You can go for a 10 mile run. You know, you can, you can brag if you're feeling pride, you know, tons of pride. There's also sorts of things that you can do to... Or it has an application, I guess. You could yes. channel your anger into something positive. I don't know if you could channel your sloth into something positive. I guess you could get some rest. You but can get yeah. some rest. I mean, also, yeah. And you can binge watch. I don't know. You can do it. At, you can have a lazy Sunday. It's very hard to figure out a way to slake your envy. It corrodes. It's super insidious. And it was a real aha moment to realize that, yeah, it's the one kind of of the seven deadly sins. It's the one emotion or sin that doesn't like have a kind of particularly constructive outlet. I mean, a therapist would tell you, oh, well, use it, let it spur you on to achieve higher and greater things. And I guess that's true. You know, you can, but, but it's very hard to tolerate envy, I think, for most people. Well, you know, and um, there's a, there's a term I have, I believe I have coined it, and that is schadenfrenda, <laughs> which is um, when you uh, when you delight when you when you delight in the misfortune of your frenemy. So you know friend. that is what. So Gore Vidal, you know he, the famous thing he said was that you know um, every time a friend of mine succeeds, I die a little inside. But you know the other thing that he was reported to have said was it, that it's not enough for you to succeed, your friend must also fail. And that is your word, <laughs> shot in friend. That is perfect. That is, I mean, it's so good. It's so good. And what do you make of that? The whole, um, I mean, frenemy is just such a great, um, it's, it's just such a great coinage. And I, I feel like I started hearing it about 20 years ago. I don't, and I don't know if it came up. I don't, it feels like it might've been on sex in the city or something like that. But what do you make of that? word yeah. and the concept. Yeah, that concept. I, I don't know. I, I think that something that, you know, Aristotle wrote about envy is like the most sort of useful for this, which is that it has to be a friend who's doing something very similar to you or very or meets your profile in a way so that it almost could have, should have been you. You have to really identify with that person. So if I have a friend who is a doctor and they are promoted to the head of the ER to run the whole, like, I have a friend who is actually like the number three at a, you know, major New York City hospital, and she might get promoted to, you know, if, if she ever got promoted to run the ER there, I would be over the moon for her. I mean, how does that affect me? Like, I can't be the head of like a major, like, you know, I'm not a doctor. She's also a very good person to know. It's a really you know, good person you, to know. And you it, find yourself in the hospital. Right, and also, but like, think about the vanity associate. It makes me seem like a badass to have a friend right. who's like a badass yeah. doctor, right? Like that reflects well on me. The better she does, the cooler I seem, right? Like that's just total win-win. Whereas if I've been struggling at one thing and my friend has been struggling at the same thing, and then my friend goes off and crushes it and I do well, but I don't crush it. You know, how can I not take it as, as some kind of referendum on my own career, right? Or if all of my friends are getting married and I am not getting married, what is wrong with me? You know, and we are all the same age and we all, you know, sort of seem to have what seem to be like a similar suite of attributes. It's different. I mean, if I walk around with a friend who looks like a supermodel, I'm not going to really feel particularly jealous because she's another species, you know, like whatever, you know, you're not going to envy your friend who's like five foot 10 and 
whatever, perfect. I, like they're just, it, they have to be close enough to you. That's the thing about envy. And so frenemy, even the portmanteau, it's like, it's partly got the word for like, it's you are, you bleed enough into it. Yeah. Although a frenemy can also be, it can keep you on your toes. I mean, it can kind of, it can galvanize you. It's such a delicate balance because I think, you know, envy between colleagues, it can be poisonous, but it can also be, it can spur you on. You know, there've certainly been great friendships that have involved some kind of rivalry. Well, okay. So uh, Jen, I did something that I don't normally do on this podcast, and I, but I kind of crowdsourced some questions j- beca- just because this piece seemed to have struck such a nerve with so many people. And I, so I went on Twitter and I said I would be interviewing you this morning. And, and I asked if people had things they wanted to be sure that we touched on. And I got a lot of responses. So I'm going to just kind of go through a few of these, somebody asked, and this is kind of relevant to what we were just saying a few minutes ago, is there a way for friends who have suffered misfortune to ask their friends not to display their good fortune? Is there common ground between friends? I guess this is a separate question. Or is there a common ground between friends with divergent lives? I mean, I think about this all the time, back to the Facebook thing. What if you've got a, a child with a disability? Or what if you have a child who is suffering with severe mental health problems. And a hell of a lot of people are in those situations. Oh my God, for sure. And also what about, or you have friends who wanted kids and didn't have them. And you know, how, how much of that are you? I I mean, I was very mindful of that when I became a mom, especially because I um, got pregnant at 37. You know, I was like bringing up the rear in terms of my cohort. And I don't think this person is asking about this. She's not asking about kids per se. I don't think she is. is. No, no, no. Definitely something, you know, the kind the, the humble brag has just become the sort of, you know, it's become such the, the standard currency of social media discourse. 100%. And I think actually her questions are related. I think the second question, the follow on was like, is there still an area? Is there a way to build a friendship and to keep common ground when your fortunes are diverging? It's not just lives, it's fortunes. Yours are going south and your friends are going north or vice versa. And Adam Smith said, like actually wrote something about this in his theory of moral sentiments. He wrote that like, you know, you ought to, if you experience good fortune, you ought to subdue your glee around your friends. I didn't include the second half of that. He, he said it basically never works. <laughs> Eventually, you know, your friends figure it out and you grow weary of subduing your satisfaction, except for that it's really hard to be around smug people no matter what. So I'm not sure that he got that part exactly right. But I mean, far be it for me to argue with Adam Smith, but I mean, I think there are ways around that. But, you know, um, I, I do think that if you have any receptors for other people's feelings, any antenna at all, you have better sense than to gloat or to go on and on and on about all the great things that have happened to you. I do think that people should have a natural instinctive sense of that. And if people don't, I, I, I do think it's um, worth it as the party who's struggling to ask, you know, about the value of the friendship with, uh, with the person who's not bothering. I mean, I, I do think we owe it to our friends to put a lid on it most of this is luck, right? I mean, you have a friend who's, I mean, you, you have a child who's healthy or not. You have a career that goes well or does not. Even if your mistakes are of your own unlovely making and design, like, are you choosing that? If you're choosing that, then something's gone wrong at some point in your life that's making you bad, make bad choices. I mean, you just, 
I think it's incumbent on every on others at a certain point to to do that for the people around them. Yeah. And, you know, somebody also says he would like more detail regarding social media and the negative impact on friendships. And I'm just listening to you talk. I'm wondering, okay, 30 years ago, before there was Facebook, how, what did this look like? Like, you know, our our mothers were sitting around, you know, having shot in Frenda or feeling resentful or feeling close to their friends, any number of things as they were raising us. They were not having to look at the pumpkin patch photos on Facebook. You know, the the only sort of version that we got of that were the holiday letters every every year, right? The sort of bragging letters where people would, you know, write long screeds about how brilliant their kids were doing and they'd have photos and you know, that would be very exciting to to get in the mail every year. But do you think that it's gotten worse in terms of these kind of toxic dynamics or have they just changed? To speak to the point about mothers, if they were part of that kind of condemned Betty for Dan generation where the only thing that they could do when they wanted to do something else was raise their kids... I would imagine that their kids were everything and if they and bragging about their kids may have been the only way that they they could have sort of put a stake in the ground and shown their own accomplishments. I imagine that was very vexed and very complicated. You know, I don't know. It's something to think about that like if you can't create your own life and you're forced to create a life through your, you know your kids and that's you know, right? So I don't know how to even really think about that. I'm wondering how how friendships have changed. I mean, it's just a very basic question, I guess, in, in the age of social media. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, that, that was just me thinking on the first half of your question to go to the second half. Yeah. I think uh, there's definitely more of it in the air. It's ridiculous. It's, I mean, you know, social media is not just an accelerant. It's kind of like a, um, what is it? I mean, it's a fire hose, you know? I mean, there's just all, of it, it's, it's ambient, it's everywhere. So yes, I think it has changed. I think, and it's also made a certain kind of bragging acceptable. Like, you know, I've stopped doing this. There used to be a species of tweet, which was, um, this was common among journalists. I had such a good time going on Charlie Rose last night. <laughs> I was so honored to be interviewed by Charlie Rose. It was so, so wonderful to join Bill Maher again. No, it wasn't. You want all of us to see that you were on those shows. I mean, come on. But you, the thing is, you have to. But see, now we're blurring the lines between professional life and and personal life. You you are so you are professionally obligated to to tweet that you went on on Charlie Rose or Terry Gross. But here's but the thing: like, are you? Because way more people listen to Terry Gross than look at my damn Twitter feed. I mean, so like that's really the tweet. It's being on Terry Gross. I don't need to say it. Like, what, what is my get at that time when I went on Terry Gross? I had a book out. I was super lucky. She, you know, published in the dead of January. You know, she chooses this. It's like some bolt of good luck. And I probably had like what four thousand Twitter followers, if that. I didn't have to tweet it. I, I bet you I did. If I scrolled all the way back, I bet I'd find it and it'd be mortifying. You know, like I didn't have to. And and you know, it, and what happened in our discourse that made it acceptable to do that? I don't know. I, I think a lot about it now. I think about it even more having written this piece and also having been aware of the fact that, you know, how hard it was. I mean, when my dear friend Bob got picked for Oprah, what saved me, you know, I, I don't, I'm not inclined toward professional jealousy much. 
I feel like my own career has been like fulfilling. It's been fun. It's been good. And also I think women are of my generation anyway, like we were probably, there was more, just as much pressure on us to get married and to have a bunch of kids and to do well in that way. And if anything, I feel a little bit ashamed of my own kind of tardiness in that way. And that I'm a stepmom and that, I, you know, all these other things, that's where my shame sort of comes from. Professional stuff, I feel like, hey, I did well, you know. But when my friend went on Oprah, I was like, Oprah, but I wanted to be interviewed by Oprah. I want to be Oprah. Like my only goal with my journalism is to make everybody feel better. Like I want it, like, like I've kind of always written about the psychology of like, you know, or about, I'm sorry, like I've written about human affect and urban affect and all these things. And oh man, Oprah. And what saved me was that Bob didn't brag. Bob didn't brag. Oh. That's what saved me. That simple. He didn't brag. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here almost 70 of them by now. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word, actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. One thing that you didn't go into in great depth in this piece, but that I bet a lot of people maybe have spoken to you about since, is the effect of political divides on friendships. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, as as a lot of people know, have been kind of wrestling with these culture war issues over the last several years. And I think the biggest thing that people say to me when they come and say, you know, I appreciate what you've written or I appreciate the podcast or whatever, um, because it makes me feel like I'm not crazy. They say, I have lost so many friends over politics and it hurts more than anything else about 
this world that we now live in, the situation that we found ourselves in. It's devastating. I have an insight about this that came way too late because it came this morning, (laughs) or maybe like, you know, yesterday, about how I would frame this, which is the following. I think that it's really not that hard to tolerate friendships where people have different political opinions. What is hard, a lot of it is how much politics matters to each individual person and how consumed by politics they are when they talk. So I have friends who share my politics, but who talk about politics and my politics too much. And I don't need to be filibustered at about my own political points of view, a point of view. I already know what I think and I don't need to hear it repeatedly at dinner. And I don't need to see somebody get worked up about it because at dinner I have different aims, right? And so I think some of it is like the vehemence and the passion that politics awakens in people. And it's, are you matched in that regard? You know, I mean, I have friends who share very different political beliefs, but there's no, we're we're not going to persuade each other. So we will talk about Jane Austen, you know, we'll just talk about something else. And I think that that matters a good deal. Well, I'm glad to hear that because, uh, you know, a lot of my experience and what I hear from people all the time, it really boils down to this narcissism of small differences dynamic that that Elisa and Rebecca were dealing with, you know, at the, at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about how ultimately their their rift came down to disagreeing about something having to do with how the best way to handle depression. I mean, I'm not saying it's a it's a minor difference of opinion, but it's not the biggest thing in the world. Like they were basically on the same page about 90 percent of 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 their ideas. I mean, they were they were pretty aligned philosophically and in terms of their values and it was just this kind of remaining 10% that they couldn't agree on and that's what drove them apart and that's what I, I see all the time. It's like, oh, you know, I thought I I had these friendships for decades and we all hated George W. Bush and we all agreed that feminism was important. And we, you know, we, we basically lined up in, in all the ways that we thought mattered. Um, and if, if we didn't agree on certain things, it actually didn't matter that much. And in the last five years, it's like, we cannot get past that, that last 10%. If you're, it's not enough that, that we both hate Trump. We both hate, have to hate him in exactly the same way. So I totally agree with you. And I'm wondering if there is a corollary here to the envy thing, which is to say you envy the people who are very similar to you in profile. In profile and that's where the toxic kind of element comes in. So you have the biggest arguments with people who are very close to you in profile, but that 10% difference is for whatever reason, it becomes inflammatory for some reason, right? Like, And I maintain that like the way these things survive is if you don't dwell on that 10%. It's the people who insist on foregrounding it where it becomes a problem. You can either like, look, you know, when I see that like somebody is just going in a different direction about the culture wars than I am, it's best to just be to retreat. I think you're not going to move anybody. And these are very tender feelings people have. 
I signed the Harper's letter when uh, James Bennett got fired from the New York Times. I wanted to show my solidarity with James. I, I really thought that he shouldn't have been fired. In hindsight, I really thought that, like, you know, the, the Tom Cotton editorial that he ran was <laughs> not grounds for defenestrating anyone. And I could not believe avalanche of shit that I just witnessed it for days in my Twitter feed, not directed at me, but directed at the letter. I couldn't believe how angry people were about that letter. When all of us were on the same team, there wasn't a person who signed that who ever wanted to see Donald Trump reelected, who didn't think that the party, that, you know, that the Republican party had, you know, hadn't gone off the rails. I mean, it, it was amazing to me that this wound people up so much. And it was a real eye opener. And it made me, I mean, it was, I don't know if I, I mean, I, I didn't get out of bed for like 36 hours after that. I, mean, I just couldn't really depress me. And I took it very personally. And a number of my opinion colleagues wrote really scathing things about it days and days afterwards. And I was like, why? Why? Really? Why? Did you, were you not getting out of bed because you I took it felt personally, personally yeah, I took, injured yeah. or was it just the principle of it? No, I took it personally. I'm, I'm oversensitive. No, I'm just. Do you regret, did you regret signing no. it? <laughs> no. I, cause you know, I, this was on my list of things to ask you. You're not somebody who's especially associated with the culture wars. You've, you've stayed out of the fray of the kind of, you know, usual suspect heretic media figures, and I might be among them now. Um, but, you know, I, I do get the feeling that your your sensibility does lean in this, you know, pro-free speech, pro-due process, kind of hetero, heterodox direction. Definitely. Um, I'm, I'm, and by the way, I did write one column before I became like an official columnist, super defending on one of the YA authors that got canceled. I mean, like and decrying the canceling and the cancellation of it. It was a guy who had functioned as a, I banged my spoon on my high chair about cancel culture in this big way in that one column. And I didn't actually pay a particularly steep price for it. And my point was, he was a guy, he was like a young gay African-American guy who had been a sensitivity reader and written a book that right, then got, I remember yeah, this story. Like, yeah. yeah. And then he, and then, you know, then everybody came after him. And what was somewhat fascinating to me is that like, you know, according to the laws of like YA uh, writing, he should have stayed in his own wheelhouse and only written about, you know, gay black men. But he wanted to write about like a young gay black guy and his boyfriend who were stuck in Kosovo during their, you know, civil war. And his inclination when his mind was at rest was to invent things and to wander into fertile new territory as any novelist should be able to do. There was a sort of demonstration of principle. You should be, as a novelist, be allowed to sort of imagine your way into the texture and consciousness of another person's life, you know, and he was being savaged for it. The YA, that's young adult fiction culture wars, are so extreme, so preposterous, so batshit crazy that I would, I, I, I can't imagine that somebody could accuse you of say, you know, being some kind of strident, obsessed culture warrior by having the temerity to point out that this is ludicrous. 
Um, you'd think so. I mean, but you know, Barry Weiss <laughs> okay. and everybody else was warning me, you're going to get blowback, but I think you're right. Or I was careful enough. I, I don't know, but yeah, I, I'm not a culture war figure, but I, I, but you're right. I don't, I don't tend to traffic in that stuff, but I, I, I felt very strongly about my boss getting tossed out. I just thought it was wrong. I wasn't going to be the 11th columnist to write about the New York Times, about James getting fired. Like I just, uh, everybody at the New York Times was writing about this. And I thought rather than being the 11th columnist to write about this, I'm going to sign this letter and just let everyone know that I thought that this was a catastrophic mistake. That was my solution. I mean, and the reason I I started asking about this because you know you you pointed out that if if your whole sort of persona is somebody who's obsessed with politics either on the left or the right either somebody you know who's obsessed with uh, social justice stuff on the left or somebody on the right who's obsessed with you know the the election was stolen uh, or even somebody who's like at a I, I think I was called um, an extreme centrist uh, re- recently on, uh, on on Twitter I don't I'm not sure how you could be extreme uh, centrist but um, you know I think that it, it's there are certain people who just for whom this has become so all-encompassing um you know and sometimes there's reason for it sometimes it, that is their career i mean barry weiss that is that well, is her career uh, well i think that being an anti-identitarian is a new other identity too right i mean it's not just and barry to her credit is like branching out and having other people do other things she's trying to you know do a franchise but like and, and i wrote about this that i think political monomania no matter what form it takes is tiring in a friendship. It's just the monomania part. That's what I was trying to say. That like it's a question of how much you want to foreground this. There just the world is big. There are lots of things to discuss. You can talk about a lot of other stuff, you know, and I, I just think that it's a question of you know, emphasis of emphasis. It's like, yeah, no, I, uh, no, I, I completely agree. And I guess, you know, I have noticed just personally that I think sometimes I have friendships, old friendships where, you know, maybe we're not in touch all the time. It's not somebody I speak to every day. And there's a perception that I have become somebody who, who has one topic. Like, you know, oh, she's doing a podcast. It's all about the culture wars. Well, actually, it's not. It's about a whole bunch of things. If it were all about the culture wars, I'd have a bigger audience, I can assure you. Yeah, I think that's right. And so, and so, um, I just personally have found some of my friendships strained because there is a perception that I have somehow become this other kind of person. I mean, I signed the Harper's letter too. And, you know, I did not, it's funny because I was not even aware of people criticizing me for it because I've been criticized for so long about this stuff. Um, it didn't, it didn't really affect me that way. Um, I I didn't feel like I got personally criticized. I just felt, I, I just felt like I couldn't believe how ridiculed as a group we all were. I mean, I was just stunned that that and yes i can imagine you in the beginning were kind of going out when it was still innovative you were asking questions and i think you've moved on and broadened but i mean i think you were asking all these questions and it probably i can imagine it totally upset the equilibrium with some of your friendships yeah no it definitely did and i but again i feel like it was i i feel like it's a perception issue more than a reality well particularly at this point because as you're pointing out i mean you've got a really eclectic i mean we're not discussing 
agricultural worker is. <laughs> well, now we are. Right, but we hadn't right been. Off yeah, but we hadn't moment. been. And that's the point. You know, one thing about friendships that I think is underexplored is the effect of knowing that your friends can talk about you behind your back, sometimes in not very nice ways, and still be your friend. That is uh, a sort of um, a form of emotional resilience that I think people need to need to recognize more. Just you, everyone's talking shit about you all the time. Maybe even especially the people who love you the most, and you just have to not think about it. And you wouldn't ever want to overhear what they were saying. I think it would be really devastating for me to hear what my friend said about me. And you know, what's so awful. I think some of it would come as news to me. I think I keep my head in my, in the sand about certain flaws. Oh, me too. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you, I think, and it makes triadic friendships particularly hard, you know, where like there are two people who are talking about a third and, you know, um, it makes, it's easier when it's kind of more diffuse among a group the older the friend is, the more they have on you, the more they know about you. It makes newer friendships easier. You don't see their flaws first, right? You know, they're, they're bright and shiny and perfect to you. Um, and I agree. I, it is an unacknowledged part of friendships that, you know, if you leave the room, your other friends might start to talk, right? And it's just a question of like, but, but, but how much and do they get past it? And will they defend you when people who don't have your best interests at heart come after you, right? That's where right. you have to do the, the really, the, the much higher stakes imagining. Yeah. And I guess it's just, it's the, the, the keeping your head in the sand thing is interesting because I am definitely guilty of that. There's just so much stuff. I don't, I don't want to know. And sometimes I think, well, if I was a healthier, stronger person, I would want constructive feedback. Me too. <laughs> from my friends about what was wrong with me. Me too. But I just feel like I don't have the bandwidth. Like, I don't want to know. It's like, I'm not going to read the food label on this junk food that I'm about to put in my mouth. I just, I can't do it. And also, I mean, I wonder if that's another thing. Like, we're 52. I mean, you know, you have high hopes for how much you can change when you're younger. And then as you get older, you're like, well, (laughs) I can stretch maybe 3% in this direction and 4% in that. But, you know, it's not like... I would certainly want to know if I was habitually doing something that really hurt someone, you know, like that's a habit that I would have to change, you know, but some things like just, I I think, uh, yeah, I just don't see myself as being strong enough, honestly, to withstand that. And I have friends who can, with whom I can have like more open conversations about things that hurt me, you know, or have upset me, you know, and I have friends who I'm very impressed with their abilities to sort of apologize. You know, you say like, Hey, that, that hurt my feelings. And they just go, Oh, you know, they make it possible for you to say that. And they also embrace, you know, what you've said with like some, you know, an openness that I really love. Is there a gender dynamic to that? Is it easier to do that with male friends than female friends? Oh God, that is such an interesting question. I do not know. I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say so. From my point of view, as a woman speaking to either a woman or a man, I feel like it's just how good your self-esteem is. I mean, to the extent, I mean, are men higher self-esteem creatures generally? I just feel like there's kind of a give there. Like I, I can imagine myself saying to a guy friend, like, you know, shut up or just, you know, like there's a kind of, um, there's a lack of hypersensitivity generally in men, uh, 
that would make it a little bit easier for me to be like, you know, you, 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 you hurt my feelings or, I mean, I'm not, You're I'm right. not a very good, no, no, no. I, you know what I would be, you would be find me very frustrating as a friend probably because I never like, I just don't, um, if my feelings are hurt, I just like kind of avoid the person and wait for it to blow over. No, no, no. I'm not a confrontational person. Right, but no, but I don't tend to be that life. way either. I mean, in real time, if like I'm having an argument, I'll, I'll argue back for sure. You know, but like if something's bothering me or I, I, I'm very afraid to bring things up, I let, it just sits there in my gut for years. I mean, so I have the same thing, but um, I, I'm just thinking about uh, thinking this through. I had a male, you know, friend who said something to me in, in real time that I found so kind of like startling that I said, that was artless. And he was silent. And he said, you know, Jen, you're not the first person to use that word about me. (laughs) And about a half an hour later, I got an email saying, sorry, I was heartless. I mean, oh, heartless. No, no, no. I did say artless. 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 That's brilliant. Yeah. No, I didn't say, no, heartless. You're not, you want to be friends with the, yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. No, (laughs) but like, you know, it was charming. I'm always reminded in these conversations of a piece by my my friend Tim Kreider, the essayist. He's great. He published a piece in the New York Times back in 2013 called I Know What You Think of Me. And it's about this phenomenon of friends talking behind one another's backs. And I'm not going to say a woman couldn't have written this piece, but he's so matter of fact about it. And he manages to combine um, tremendous kind of... Um, emotional presence with, with just a, a sort of, um, kind of disciplined distance. He, you know, he says, he writes, we all make fun of one another behind one another's backs. He's also very meticulous with grammar. Even the people we love, of course we do. They're ridiculous. Anyone worth knowing is inevitably also going to be exasperating. That's perfect. He's and so that good. Is very true. He's so good. And could a woman have done that? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And, you know, I just want to read a little bit from the last paragraph of this piece. I should have Tim on the podcast. You should. Oh, my God. He he wrote, he wrote, years ago, a friend of mine had a dream about a strange invention, a staircase you could descend deep underground in which you heard recordings of all the things anyone had ever said about you, both good and bad. The catch was you had to pass through all the worst things people had said about you before you could get to the highest compliments at the very bottom. He writes, there is no way I would ever make it more than two and a half steps down such a staircase, but I understand it's terrible logic. If we want the rewards of being loved, we have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. He's a perfect writer. I mean, yeah, he should be a lot more famous than he I is. I know, yeah. I know. He, I mean, he's brilliant. Well, and the precision, as you said, I mean, those are, those sentences are perfectly calibrated. Um, I think... I would never make two and a half steps. I wouldn't venture down that staircase. Yeah, I, I don't crave praise that much. It's not that price is too, you know, high. Um, and it's a funny thing that we do. Like wh- the people who I think we're kind of hardest on are often our, you know, spouses or partners. And you also get the most love back from them. And it's when you don't get that kind of affirmation back and only get the negative that you know, that, that relationship takes a turn, you know, um, and you're so known to his point, right? Like I should have written about that. And I will be honest, it did not cross my mind. Maybe I think because like, I can't go there in my head. I can't, it would kill me. 
I could not to think about people talking about you. I, if somebody gave me the opportunity to go through all of my friends' emails, I would not. I, I I would like hand the computer back. Zero interest. None. No interest to snoop. Would not want to know. None. But the thing is, we do it all the time. At least I do. I'll talk with other friends. I will not gossip because I think gossip implies that you're like spilling secrets. Oh, of course. I'm not saying I don't do it. I'm just saying I can't hear that myself. Right. But I mean, we do it. It's like, it's not like when I am talking to another friend and we're dissecting the, you know, proclivities and, you know, exasperating qualities of another friend. It's not like we're sitting there saying, and I never want to see her again. And she's, uh, you know, a a worthless person. If anything, uh, you know, the fact that we are spending all this time discussing this person suggests that they are of tremendous importance to us. But Ah, that's right. No, but that's right. And also I think it's, um, you could argue it's something that you need to do in order to be able to then be present and be generous with that friend when you see them again, because if there's a thing that's bugging you about them and your inclination is not to bring up that thing, because that thing is central to who they are. And it's the one part of them that you find hard to tolerate. You work it out with another human and not that person. And that might be okay. It might even be healthy. It might be the equivalent of going to the gym and working it all, you know, working out your willies or your bad, you know, your bad energy about it. I think that's fine. I do. I think it's justifiable. Well, Jen, before I let you go, I want to make sure that um, I I ask you about an extraordinary piece that you published last summer. And it actually is relevant to friendship because it had to do with a family. that's been family friends of yours for a long time. Um, this came out in August of 2021. It's called What Bobby McElvain Left Behind, Grief, Conspiracy Theories, and One Family's Search for Meeting in the Two Decades Since 9-11. Can you just tell us a, a little bit of, about that piece? It's it's complicated, and I'm going to obviously suggest people just read it, but um, this, this involved... Um, a longtime uh, friend of yours who died in 9-11 right. and his family. It was my brother's, yeah. Um, and it was, um, but the family, and uh, yeah, and I love this kid. But so, yeah, this is like the story I'm proudest of in my career. And I'm prouder of that than I am of my book, which is weird, you know? I mean, I'm like, so thank you for asking about it. It's very generous of you to do. I um, And it was funny to navigate because of the family friendship and because my brother is still friends with this kid's brother. So the story is this. My brother went to college and threw his duffel bag and his belongings on one bunk. And the other bunk was taken by this guy named Bobby McElvain. And they became best friends and roommates for four years in college. And then they moved in together as young guys in Manhattan in a two-bedroom apartment in, you know, in their 20s. And when Bobby was 26, he went off to set up one of his colleagues at the World Trade Center, you know, um, at Windows on the World to give a presentation early in the morning on September 11th and had left the building, it would seem, because the guy's presentation was at 840 And they recovered Bobby's body outside the building on the periphery. So he had probably set up, left the building, and the plane hit at 846, and they found Bobby's body somewhere on the periphery. Um, So he probably got hit by debris. And we've been friends with the family ever since. My brother was suddenly, like, didn't have his best friend anymore in the world. They've been close for eight years, best friends for eight years. And uh, 
the, what made me write about it, in addition to the fact that I've known the family, that we, my, my parents are very close to Bobby's parents, that I love Bobby's parents, two things happened. His father became a truther and became very obsessed with conspiracy theories about how the towers came down. And, um, and he became a very kind of famous truther. And Bobby's not quite fiance, he had bought the ring and he had asked her father for permission to get married to her. She walked off with the last diary that Bobby ever wrote. And it was like on his desk on September 11th. He had, you know, all his thoughts from that year in that diary. And it was the one thing she took of his, and it was something his mother desperately wanted back for years because it was the last chance to spend time in her boy's company to hear his voice again. And I thought, you know what? On the 20-year anniversary, I'm going to get that diary back. If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to find a way to get it and to show it to the McElvain family. And I'm going to talk to them about what the loss meant, you know? You know, I mean, it's been 20 years. Like, how do you bolt on a new reality when you've lost this magical person? Because Bobby was magic. You know, he was just this really special kid. What is the most important thing a friend has ever done for you in your life? What has been the most important gesture of friendship that you've received? Oh, gosh. One just showed up when I was giving birth. He just showed up. You know, it, it was astonishing to see him there um, outside in the waiting room. I, I, you know, my friend Bob probably took walks with me every half an hour on the half hour when I got broken up with at a time in my life by a person that I expected that I'd be with. And um, it was devastating. And I was interrupting his work day. I mean, he couldn't get any work done because I was a mess. And, um, he just kept walking me around the block. My friend Nina bought me a massage you know, certificate in that same period. When, I mean, I was just really fragile then. Um, not like suicidal, but super fragile. And I, like she, you know, like it just showed up, like, please go out right now and do that. I mean, it's a small thing, but like she did it at the exact moment I needed it. I've had friends who've like, slept in my bed when I was feeling that when I went, my friend Nina slept in my bed when I was first going through insomnia and was afraid what I was staying, do, doing all nighters. You know, I have this sleep disorder where I just do all nighters and she just stayed with me one night. My friend Kyla did that for me when I had a bad, the same bad breakup. I mean, things like that. I don't know. Do they count? I would say so. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I get that's very moving. Even just hearing those stories. Yeah. Well, Wait, wait, I want to know what, what what has a friend done for you? What's the most significant? Oh, gosh. I was just going to sign you out. No, nope, no. I totally uh, want to know now. Because oh I'm wondering if I'm like missing something. Like, you know, no, I'm going to I'm no. going to sign out and then I'm going to go, wait, there was an even bigger thing. But, you know, it's so different because like I am not the kind of person that, you know, a friend would sleep in my bed. It's not. I, I think you and I have very, I think we're really similar in a lot of ways, but our temperaments are sort of fundamentally different. I think it's more... I mean, I just think that my friends have been willing to listen to me complain about the same things, you know, year after year after year um, without, uh, without abandoning me for it. There are so many things I could point to. I mean, I, 
I had a medical ordeal um, about 11 years ago where I was in the hospital with the freak illness. And I, it was, uh, this is something I've written about, but it was a situation where I was conscious, but very sick at one moment. And then the next thing I knew, I woke up and many, many days had passed. Oh. I, had, I had been, I had been put in a medically induced <gasps> coma and unbeknownst to me, all of my friends had had gathered either, you know, in their attention, being kept um, updated as to what was going on, and in some cases coming to the hospital and um, being with my my then husband and my family members, and you know, bringing them food. I just, it's like I suddenly just woke up, and it was like everyone I'd ever known was was aware of what was going on when I had absolutely no idea what had gone on. I mean, part of it was that my husband had taken my phone and basically, well, w- one friend was designated as the, like, you know, the person who was going to send out the email updates as to what was going on with me. But like they had done this by taking my phone and basically just taking every single contact out of the phone and putting them on this list. So it's like, you know, everyone from my oldest best friend to like somebody that, you know, I had a a, a Pilates uh, yep. training session with one time, you know, who happened to be in my phone contacts was on this list. It was an APB and they all, that he sent out. Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. People, right. And so, uh, you know, and um, yeah, it was just kind of remarkable to see. That is uh, intense. They and, were all suddenly there. And you're reminding me, right, the, the, the friends who were there for your medical scares, I mean, at our age, with any luck, hopefully they're just scares, you know? And, but like, yeah, my friend Sue, when I was, you know, for my second, you know, crappy mammogram slash biopsy, you know? Yeah. Right. I mean, and that's intense. Those are huge things, you know? Yes. All that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the older you get, it's the, the friends that sit with you in the hospital. Oh my God. Uh, for whatever reason. Yep. Um, those are, those are the ones. Yep. So, yep. Jen, thank you so much for talking with me. Um, it's been an immense pleasure. Yep, and um, Thanks for, interview, or for inviting me on the show. That was my interview with author and journalist Jennifer Senior. Her article, It's the Friends That Break Your Heart, appears in the most recent issue of The Atlantic. If you go to The Atlantic online, you can also find her write-up of a correspondence she had with the legendary novelist Margaret Atwood, who tweeted that she loved the article, and this led to an exchange uh, between Jennifer and Margaret about friendship. So see, Twitter is good for something. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. A couple of quick announcements on our way out here. If you would like to apply for my next personal essay and memoir masterclass on Zoom, and that class will be starting on April 4th and run through May 23rd. It will run for eight consecutive Mondays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. You can go to daummasterclass.com and apply by March 18th. Also, as I mentioned last week, the paperback edition of my book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars, is now available. It includes a new foreword that I wrote just for the paperback. And if you join this podcast Patreon at the $20 a month level or higher, you will get a personal signed copy of this new edition of The Problem With Everything. 
Yes, I will sign it for you or for anyone you want, and I will send it to you myself. Like, I will literally put it in a package and take it to the post office and send it to you. Joining at that level also gets you other perks. For instance, like I will personally thank you at the top of the show if you would like. I'll give a shout out to you or to the charity of your choice. And you can ask a question about anything you want. You can ask me a question like, why the hell are you doing this? And I will answer it at the top of the show. You can go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and find out all about that and join our growing community of listeners. That's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.